This podcast is sponsored by the EV Clinic. Preparation for life. Welcome to the Baby Tribe podcast, where we will explore the beautiful chaos of parenthood and discover the joys and challenges of nurturing our little ones. We are your hosts, Katie Mugan and Afif El-Kafash. Each week, we'll bring you the latest information on all things to do with parenting and delve into insightful conversations with experienced parents to bring you practical tips, heartwarming stories, and a dose of laughter that every parent can relate to. So grab your coffee, find a cozy spot, and join us as we embark on this unforgettable journey of parenthood together. Welcome to the Baby Tribe. What cozy spot is a parent going to find? Just put on your ear pods and out you go for that walk and you'll get to tune in and listen to myself and Afif talking everything small babies related. Let's get to it. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Baby Tribe podcast. We are nearing the end of the season. We are getting closer and closer to Christmas. I know. Do you watch the toy show? Afif, my t- my Christmas tree, our tradition at home, which Jim is like the ultimate bah humbug, goes up on the Thursday before the uh, toy show. However, the toy show is getting earlier every year. So now I look like the freak that has the to- <laughs> the Christmas decorations up so early. Oh, you have them up already, do oh, you? Oh, yeah. We had them up since the 20th. Uh, the toy show was on Friday the 24th. The kids all stayed up for it. It was a great night. And our Christmas deco- our house is fully Christmas decorated. I'm going to tell you a heartbreaking story about the toy show. What? So... You know, they select kids. You can actually audition to be yeah. a child on the toy show. So Faisal, about five years ago, auditioned for the toy show. And he used to have this little um, YouTube channel where he used to review toys. It's very, very cute. But he loved doing it. And he's like, Dad, my lifelong dream is to go on the toy show. So he did this audition. It was really, really funny. And we get the call to say, can he come to the RTE studio for an interview? Yeah, so we had to, had to bring him to the RTE. And what happened was they wanted him to come at midterm and we were away on holidays at midterm. And I was like, look, we're away. Is there any chance that you call him back? So no, we really like him. We'll, we'll make a special viewing for him. So bring him when you come back at such and such a date. Brought him in, all happy. He did a fantastic interview. I get a call two days later saying we dropped him. Oh no, Can you believe it? Yeah. the child. He was so devastated, the poor guy. So he got like to the actual auditions for the... I didn't know they did auditions. They do auditions for I the children. They just kind of said, oh yeah, they're really good. We'll take them. Nope. There's a very kind of rigorous audition process. Yeah. So he made it till the very end. And then I was like, you know, that's life. Dude. Sometimes I'm I think really that's really harder. Like, whereas if you didn't so get through hard, it all, yeah. you're like grand. But if we, you get to the final, you're like, oh my God, I'm so close. And guess what? The parents of the children do not get tickets. Sorry. Yes. So I thought that was the bonus. No. If your child is on the toy show, you do not get tickets. Well, I have tried every year. I, you know the way you get the lottery? Yeah. I wish. I mean, I just would do anything to get on the toy show. Yeah. Our, my kids are over it now, but I'd say it's still it's still a big thing in your. Um, oh, it is a firm favorite. Like it is bunker down and everything else. Um, they love it. Now, the last, the youngest two, Jack, might, he generally wouldn't really get to it. He might stay up for the, about 20 minutes of it and then he'd fall asleep. The third, will Tom will generally fall asleep. But the other two, well, Luke's hitting 13 now. He's kind of a bit past it, but he will join in just for the sake of being yeah. with the family. Yeah. So Jim hates it. How? <laughs> <laughs> he is our bah humbug. He dressed up at Halloween with uh, the Angry Bird. Amazing. Speaking of bah humbug, Christmas decorations. What? I don't know. Do you not do them? We do. Of course we do. My wife would kill me if we didn't put put up Christmas decorations. But I I try and stay 
Um, I try and stay detached from that process. I have, don't laugh at me. I have this morbid fear of glitter. He told me this just before we sat down to record this, is that he had a fear of glitter. I went, what are you talking about? It's a genuine, I can't, I can't stand glitter. And they keep teasing me with threats to buy these glitter things that go all over the place. And I can't have, I can't have glitter on the floor. It just gets in everywhere. And I'm sure some listeners would empathize. No, well, I I do get the glitter in the household, but that's only because I'm clean I hate having to clean it, but like I don't have a, a, a you know a fear or an anxiety. Oh, about I it. have, I have a genuine anxiety. I know what I'm getting a thief everyone for Christmas. <laughs> I'm not joking. Tell me, just on a really quick note, do you celebrate Christmas with the family? Because I know that obviously you have two faiths. Oh yeah, we do. Yeah, absolutely. It's, oh, a, yeah. it's a huge thing in the house. And yeah. do, the, do, the, do the rest of them all go to Christmas mass? This is like a big topic with my friends and all. Say like, you go into mass. We nearly have to break it to the grandparents. We just lie now. Nearly. Yeah, we're going. Oh really? Yeah. I mean. Generally, if we're in Mayo for it, yeah. You're going. Yeah, we And go. do you go to Mass? I used to, yeah, yeah. Did I sit you? down, Fair I sit geez. down, I sit down with the family and go through the process. Yeah, it's not Christmas without it, sure it's not. No, it's not. I don't, it's the only time I actually love going because you meet everyone. I'll, I'll, that I'll, is... I'll give you that and I'll raise you one. I used to play the saxophone for Christmas Mass. <laughs> you did not. I'm not joking, yeah. So Anne's mum plays the organ for the for the church and I used to play saxophone before my daughter was born and Anne plays the flute. She used to accost all of us to do Christmas mass together. So I'd be on the sax, Anne would be on the flute and Patsy would be on the, the, on the organ on the organ and we'd, we'd do Christmas mass. You're quite annoying. Like, is there anything you can't do? I like, can't. I honestly hate these overachievers. I and you're really not helping my situation here. I can't play saxophone anymore. Why? Like, I, I haven't actually touched it since Maggie was born. It's no a way. very loud instrument. And you know the way when your child is born. But can you actually play it? Like, I, could you pick it up and play? I think I could play the notes, but I couldn't play any songs now. Wow, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it's just a, like, it's a, uh, it's a feature in your sitting room, it's isn't now, it? It's a now a feature in the sitting room. It's something that I'd love to take up, but I have to... When, when we're finished all the baby tribe and we've well, reached it really big... Yes, exactly. Then this can become... I'll do you a can rendition. Proof exactly. It and you can... Um, yeah, exactly. That's the plan. A YouTube channel with your sax. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Anyway, so today we are going to talk a little bit about teething. Yes, I I, I get asked this all the time. And yeah, I, think I have to say it's something that I don't know much about. Well, there's quite a lot of common myths and, and misconceptions actually about teething. Um, so we're going to talk all about it now anyway. But I suppose we know that, you know, many parents will kind of, they, uh, we hear about teething. We're kind of wondering, is that teething or what is it? And many parents don't know how to tell if the baby is teething or not. Teething is a process that every child will go through um, when they're having, um, I suppose, developing their first set of teeth, often refu- referred to as baby teeth, but also uh, commonly called primary teeth. And they get, this is when I suppose they're emerging through the gums. So for some infants, they can have their first tooth quite early on at four or five months some can have it way younger than that and I know my second I thought there was something seriously wrong with her because she didn't get her first tooth till nearly 13 or 14 months but as the dentist says that works well in her favor because it means that her second teeth don't come down to later which obviously you have for the rest of your life so it's protecting them in many ways so signs and symptoms of teething how can you tell your infant's teething do you know any of these? I'm sure they, you know the basics. They start chewing on their on their fists. Is drooling. one. However, chewing on the fists, just to remember, guys, is a developmental milestone. So people often see the baby around the three months mark. And I suppose firstly, as a newborn, it's a feeding cue. It's a hunger cue. Um, but then parents often get quite confused going, are they hungry or are they not? Or are they teething? But around the three month mark, in or around that, the, you will often find babies will find their hands. It's a sensory um kind of activity and a sensory experience 
and everything goes in the mouth. So it's not always a sign of teething, but they found these incredibly uh, wonderful items that they are now attached to the body and easy to chew on. So it doesn't always reflect, but yes, down the line, if they're a little bit older, 100%, fingers go in and chew on the fingers. Drooling is another big one. Yeah, that's it. Drooling, um, excessive drooling, this is where you'll see often babies will literally sit with their mouths open. You'll see the drools coming down. Just really important, I suppose, with this one, just to ensure good kind of skin care. Um, you'll often see drool rash. I'm sure you get loads of conver- uh, um, questions from parents about drool rash. And that's like a moisture lesion. Sometimes you'll see it between the chin and the chest. Just changing the bibs really regular is important with this. And sometimes adding in... Um, uh, sometimes if it's very excoriated, a little bit of moist, um, and moisturizer and using a skin barrier as well. One that I find hard to accept is fever. I don't think fever is associated with teething. Not always, but it can in some situations. Very mild. So that's in, in the situation where there's no other physical reason. Yes. Yeah. For them to have you, it. You definitely don't give antibiotics for that. Uh, <laughs> 100% not. Um, and people will say, like, what about giving medications with regards to teething? Um, occasionally, yes, you will give a sugar. They always recommend the sugar-free anyway. But uh, if you have done everything else in your power and you have an infant that is really struggling and we know that they're very symptomatic of teething, then occasional use, but not something that you're giving every single day, two to three times a day ongoing, because that obviously leads to issues too. So give what? An anti-inflammatory would be Nurofen um, or Ibuprofen. I shouldn't use the brand name, but Ibuprofen. And in some situations, paracetamol. And before we get to that stage, what other things can parents do? Yes. The discomfort with feeding. So I'm going to jump in with all the treatments and possible things that we can do as parents. But before we do that, I'll just finish on the symptoms part. So flushed cheeks, very, very common. Um, and you'll often sometimes see gum swelling. So if the baby opens back, you'll nearly see a whiteness or a, an enlarged uh, swelling on and tenderness on the gum. Um, chewing and biting is a big one. So obviously, yes, hands in the mouth at a certain time. Disrupted sleep nearly always comes. And that's where anything that goes off, if the baby hits a new milestone, sleep is disrupted and leads to many challenges for parents. Changes in eating habits. So sometimes you will find some infants will go off their solids a little bit and maybe either look more for the breast or they may be more inclined to feed on the bottle rather than solid intake. And nappy rash is very, very common when it comes to um, teething. So with regards to treatments, have you any thoughts yourself, Afif, before I jump in? I think teething toys can be a good thing to start out with. Yeah, absolutely. And there's many ones that you can get that you can actually refrigerate. I know my daughter loved those ones that you put in the fridge that you can gnaw on afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. So just making sure that they're obviously intact, because obviously after quite a bit of use, you can end up with a break or that in them. They should be thrown out, discarded and replaced. But teething toys are really, really important. Um, Another little um, easy trick at home for you guys, if you're breastfeeding, get uh, some breast milk and pop it into uh, an ice cube tray and then you can take it out and put it into one of the handheld feeders so like the feeding nets and then it's messy it's a bit gooey but the kids love it and it's really nice on their gums so it's like a cooling nearly analgesic impact you can also do that with formula at times but most parents will just use um, even if you get a cold washcloth you can actually if you have breast milk you can put on that and if you pop it into the freezer into a ziploc bag and take it out they'll chew on that as well so anything cool kind of compress or those teething Uh, toys are really really good over the counter as we said teething gels and these will have some uh, mild analgesic kind of local anesthetics within them i know we used some of them in in our children before when the teething symptoms were pretty annoying for them but there's some recent evidence coming out that the benefit of those gels is questionable okay interesting yeah and it's only out recently so i wouldn't keep trying them if things aren't improving yeah well i suppose like anything we kind of 
uh, we use and then reassess and if they're not. But it'll be interesting to see. There probably will be more research coming on that in the future. So stay tuned. Um, pain medication. This is only for really dis- severe discomfort. Sometimes the GP, you know, parents will bring them into the GP and say there's something definitely wrong. The GP will often recommend um, some infant pain relievers uh, pa- like paracetamol, ibuprofen. Um, obviously, ibuprofen is an anti-inflammatory. can help bring down any inflammation and just help. But these are not kind of uh, products that should be used ongoing. So not every night, not two to three times a day ongoing for more than a, um, a day to two days. If that's ongoing, then the baby should be uh, seen and um, assessed by the medical practitioner yeah i think that's all reasonable advice to follow is there anything else they can do i suppose guys i biggest one um and i think we all end up doing it is just cuddle and comfort you will find they'd be like limpets they will want to be attached it's about us kind of parenting through it and finding ways to cope if they're small slings carriers can help you and give you back your hands but i suppose we just have to be prepared it is something that everyone goes through all infants will go through some will have no issues whatsoever you'll never even notice that a tooth's come up and some other kids feel every single tooth that comes up so Good luck. Um, I think that's a lovely roundup of the approach to teething in the early months. So who have we got today, Afif? Today's guest is Dr. Emma Bagnall, who is a registered senior clinical psychologist, holistic sleep coach and mother of two. With over 13 years experience working with children and their families, Emma gained a whole new perspective on parenting when she became a parent herself. Emma is a passionate advocate for challenging unrealistic expectations of perfect parenting and debunking common misconceptions based on textbook definitions of babies. In sharing her own lived experience as a healthcare professional and a parent, Emma hopes to empower parents to let go of unrealistic expectations and instead embrace child-focused parenting practices that recognize each child as an individual. Emma is guided by her philosophy, we connect, we nurture, and our children thrive. We are really looking forward to having a chat with her. This episode of the Baby Tribe podcast is sponsored by the Evie Clinic. Evie offers personalized multidisciplinary care in a state-of-the-art environment ranging from consultants, high-end scanning and prenatal screening to expert advice on diet, exercise and mental health. The Evie's team of world-class consultants in obstetrics, gynecology and pediatrics provide the highest standards of care for you and your baby. Contact Evie today on 012933984 or visit the website at evie.ie for more information. Emma, thank you so much for joining us on the Baby Track podcast. I've been meaning to get you on here to have a chat for a long while because I've been an admirer of what you do on your social media page and the support that you give to parents. So maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Thief. Um, so I am a chartered senior clinical psychologist and I'm also a holistic sleep coach and I'm a mommy to two little girls under two. And I suppose I work within both the public sector and the private sector. So in the public sector, I work on children's disability network teams. Um, and a lot of that work is kind of around assessment and intervention for children who may have a disability or complex needs. So a lot of my bread and butter there would be assessments for intellectual disability or developmental delay or the likes of autism. And then, so as my private work, I've really kind of delved now into really niching down to early child development and parenting and adjusting to being a parent. Um, And also now since training as a sleep coach, really delving into the importance of sleep and supporting parents around that and busting all those myths that are out there around sleep and child development. That's amazing. And that brings me to the question that I wanted to ask you. It was an amazing segue. When you first became a parent, 
um, given all you have told me, did you feel prepared yourself? <laughs> um, yes and no. So because I loved early child development, I thought like I had it sorted, right? I probably, I suppose, was a little bit cocky. I thought, you know, I've studied this. I know what I'm doing. I've read all the books. I've read all the research. And then my baby came along and I realized that actually there's no such thing as these textbook babies that we see. Um, I've now kind of say to parents that they're actually like unicorns of sunglasses. They sound really cool, but they actually don't exist, these textbook babies. So no, definitely when I look back, I really wasn't prepared. I knew, I suppose, I'd done a lot of the courses around like how to care for a baby and all of that, you know, in terms of bathing them and keeping them safe and all of that. But I hadn't actually thought about what it'd be like for me becoming a mammy and, and what that would be like. And I remember one of the biggest things that really took me by surprise was as a psychologist, I understood that babies cry. That's how they communicate. And, you know, I knew you pick up your baby and you soothe them and everything will be fine and off they'll go to sleep. And that's not reality. But the thing that really struck me was I didn't know that I would feel pain when my baby would cry. And I have really strong memories of that where my eldest would have been crying and my husband was really supportive and he'd be there, you know, trying to soothe her and get her relaxed and everything. And I couldn't just watch because I felt physical pain when I would hear her cry. And for me, that was just incredible because obviously I knew from the research that, you know, a mother's brain does kind of rewire during pregnancy and we become more tuned to a baby's cries that we'll be responsive. But I just didn't expect to have such a strong reaction like the only way that I could regulate myself in that moment was to take her back and soothe her myself and it was particularly around that newborn cry that goes on for the first few weeks and that really really shocked me wow and it's something I want to touch on uh, later on in in our chat especially uh, the word you mentioned you had to self-regulate yourself not just the baby which was pretty interesting was the second baby then easier or different I would say different rather than easier. In some ways, it was easier in that I, as a mum, felt more confident in caring for her. You know, those little things like the first bath and dressing them and maybe not panicking when I'd wake up to a cry in the middle of the night. But my first, I would have been like, oh, get the thermometer out. Is she okay? Because she's not settling. Um, whereas this time, I'm a little bit more laid back about those things. But it's definitely very different having two and being divided between the two. On my first, as a breastfeeding mother in particular, I really became aware of that sense of sometimes feeling really touched out because I was exclusively, exclusively breastfeeding and nobody else could do that for me. But when I introduced a new baby into the mix, even though my eldest had weaned and wasn't feeding anymore, she still needed me. And she's at the age where when she needs me, she needs physical touch and contact. And, you know, I have a memory from when my youngest now was only a few weeks old. And we're sitting in the car and she needs a feed, as would always happen. You know, you just get back to the car and they need a feed. So I'm sitting there and I'm trying to feed her. And she's been a, a little bit fussy because her latch wasn't great because she's a lip tie and a tongue tie. So I'd have to kind of adjust her a little bit. And at the very same time, my eldest little girl needed me. And my husband was there with her and he was talking to her. But she decided, no, I need my mammy and nobody else is going to do. And I was feeling really touched out because I had to keep constantly readjusting the baby for feeding. And then my eldest ended up in the footwell of the car at my feet, climbing on top of me, also crying, mammy, 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 looking for cuddles. And that was a it was a whole other level um, of kind of feeling touched out by it all. 
I suppose one of the things I was worried about was how would I love the two of them? You know, that it felt like when my first came, my first baby arrived, that I was just so in love with her and my whole world revolved around her. And then a sort of guilt set in as well that when this other baby comes along, uh, what's that going to be like for my older daughter? Like, you know, am I going to be taken away from her? Will she feel rejected? Will I have the same time for her? Like, these were all the worries that came up and they do still come up to, I suppose, a lesser extent now, but they're still there. Um, and I guess it's it's kind of hard to explain, but you do just find a way to love them both. And I definitely had to learn to adjust how I parent. Patience can be... <laughs> hard sometimes with two of them when they both need me and sometimes it's just trying to think outside the box about how it can meet both their needs at the same time while also remembering I'm human I am one person and I can't do it all and if I mess up once or if there's a few minutes in the day or even an hour in the day where I can't be all that present because I just I need my headspace that's okay you know it's not going to do them any harm that was a big learning curve for me with two of them. You mentioned the word touched out about five or six times in your answer to me. Did you feel supported throughout the early few months with both babies by by your partner? And was there an understanding of this sort of feeling of being touched out and and a recognition of, you know, sometimes you may need to be left alone and and things may not be as easy as as they seem? Yes, definitely. I'm very lucky that my husband is very supportive, but we did have to kind of have a discussion where I had to try and explain to him what was happening with my first my second he was well used to but with my first I think I myself initially didn't understand that it was that I was being touched out I just remember feeling really overwhelmed in the moment and it was like sensory overload and then when I was able to understand it we did kind of sit down and I had a conversation with him because I found that there'd even be times where he would come over to support and help and he'd do a very normal thing where he might just put his hand on my shoulder or something like that just you know to say are you okay can I help what do you need but sometimes even that touch on my shoulder it was it was too much and I'd nearly say to him like you know oh don't touch me <laughs> you know get away from me and I wouldn't mean get away from me but it was just I was so overloaded so he kind of learned to you know subtly just sneak over a flapjack <laughs> or pop his head in and say do you need anything are you okay but I think it's it's hard and it's it's an adjustment, I think, for couples where before that, you know, it wouldn't have been a problem if he came over and gave me a hug or put his hand on my shoulder. You know, it would have been seen as affection, whereas all of a sudden for him, I'm sure it's probably like I was rejecting him, you know, because it was such an immediate response. I couldn't I found I couldn't even do it in a kind way, if that makes sense. It was just it would it would burst out of my mouth before I could think about what I was trying to say. This is a very important point that you bring up. What you also bring up, which is really important, is the key to communicating that, because I think a lot of partners, I think, may have those feelings of being rejected and being not wanted because you said something that it's even hard to do it kindly and do it nicely, expressing the need not to be touched. But I think what you did in explaining all of that, I think smooths things out down the line, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I think I don't always remember to do it, but I do do try to make time afterwards to explain what happened or even to apologize for being so harsh um and that took time I think it's it's hard to say you know I was wrong and I shouldn't have done that um especially when you're so emotionally charged anyway I think as a mother with so much going on um but yeah that's one thing that I will always do is I'll always go back to him afterwards and say I'm really sorry 
I shouldn't have been so abrupt you know I was just being overwhelmed or whatever and then that's it's totally fine we kind of have this agreement that that's it and we move on that was a moment in time. You obviously have a very illustrious career to date and now you have two young ones what do you see the obstacles are when you're trying to balance work and life in the context of having this young family? It's hard and I'm still figuring it out I think Maybe it's my particular career. I don't know what it is, but I suppose psychology is a really long road to get there, to be qualified as a clinical psychologist. And before you're before you become a parent, you become laser focused on it. And it's all you think about. It's all you're working towards and everything else kind of, I suppose, gets put on hold. And then when I became a mammy, all of a sudden my career wasn't the be all and end all. I absolutely love what I do and I want to have my career. But I also have this conflicting love for my children as well. And for me, I think one of the biggest obstacles is that a lot of employers in Ireland and maybe it goes as far as the government, but they don't realise just how hard it can be for mothers sometimes to leave their babies when they're young. And we have all the research to back it that says that the first 1001 days are the most crucial for child's development. So that includes from when they're conceived right up until they turn two. And I suppose there's lots of mammies would reach out to me and chat to me on Instagram before they go back to work. And they're really, they're really struggling. And they're saying to me, I would just like more time at home, whether that's more full-time time at home or maybe just going back on part-time hours. And that's just not an option for them. I feel like it's kind of sad in a lot of ways because I feel like maybe mothers are being pushed out of their careers and following their career goals sometimes because they don't want to leave their babies just yet and they're reading the research you know a lot of mammies now we're, we're clued in we, we read the research and they want to stay at home with their babies for longer but they're not facilitated to do that and I think on paper it looks great you get your paid maternity leave but when it comes to your unpaid maternity leave that can be really hard financially for parents to do that and they're using up all their annual leave just to get to a year with their babies. And then I suppose there's the other side of it where there's some mammies who are ready to go back to work sooner. And it's like, you, you can't win no matter what you choose. If you want to stay at home longer, people think, you know, you're molly coddling your baby and you know, you just need to toughen up and go back to work. But then you have other people who do want to go back and that's, that's what they're happy to do. And you have people saying, oh, you're so selfish and how can you leave your baby? I think you're, you're, no matter what you do, you're wrong. And I think that needs to change for months. There's a new word that, that I've come across, uh, which is matrescence, that I'm seeing being um, used quite a lot. Am I correct in saying that our conversation so far has somewhat encapsulated the concept of matrescence? Yes, definitely. Um, and particularly, I think that piece of forgetting maybe a mum in the middle of all of us, you know, in those really early months, weeks, years, we're all focused on child development and we forget that mum is also going through her own development within that you know they they like matrescence to adolescence as almost like another life stage and development and for me it sort of reminds me a little bit like when you're I suppose 18 and you're you've just turned an adult but maybe you don't fully know who you are yet but you're thrown into this next stage and even though I suppose often we kind of do plan our families and plan when we want to become a mother it can still feel like we're just thrown into it because we're not always told about the reality of parenting and the reality of what it's like to be a mother. And it can almost feel like you're going at it alone. And it can feel like you don't know who you are anymore. 
and your all of your values, your roles, everything changes. It's almost like the carpet is whipped out from under you and you're trying to navigate that while at the same time probably being incredibly happy as well that you're, you've got your baby to hold or maybe the other side but maybe you're really struggling and people feel that you should be happy and they're telling you that you should be happy I think it can be a very lonely place for mothers to be coining the term helps us encapsulate the concept and maybe also helps us uh, as healthcare providers and, and and clinical psychologists like yourself to address this um I think it's funny as well where lots of mothers will message me and say oh you find it hard too and you're a psychologist so I think sometimes there's an assumption as well that if you're a health professional or you in some way work with children that you should be able to just get on with it do you know and I think it's actually it's something it's universal just like we all go through childhood and adolescence and adulthood matrescence is something that regardless of your career history to date it's it's hard we've chatted to Dr Bagnell as a mum and I now want to chat to Dr Bagnell as a clinical psychologist in your experience both as a clinical psychologist and a mother what are some common parenting myths you're encountering and how do they differ from the realities of everyday parenting? There's lots of them. <laughs> One of them that comes to mind that I get a lot of messages about from mammies is that if you make a mistake in terms of soothing and regulating your baby, that you're somehow going to do some long term damage. And I think that's because there's so much in social media, in particular, the minute around connection and co-regulation and it's absolutely fantastic that we're seeing that um but sometimes the way that it's portrayed it's almost like mums feel like they need to do that 24 7 all the time they always need to have the perfect response they always need to have time to slow down and soothe and and regulate and that's not the reality of real life parenting and I suppose with the exception of very traumatic events um it's very unlikely that if you don't respond the way that you would like to as a parent once a day, twice a day, maybe even three times a day, that you're going to do any long-standing damage. There's some kind of mixed research out there. Um, they say maybe it could be like 20 to 30% of the time, the parent that you want to be and be responsive and focus on that connection, that that's what matters. And ultimately the big piece as well for parents is that you will mess up. You are human, you will make mistakes, you're going to be sleep deprived, you're not going to be perfect, but it's what you do with that afterwards that really matters. It's that repair that you can do with your child where you can kind of go back and say, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have shouted at you at that time or whatever it might be. That there's always opportunity to repair, it's not long-standing. The other myth I'm getting a lot at the minute, I think since I trained as a holistic sleep coach is about baby sleeping through the night. And I know that's one that you probably hear a lot about as well, Afif. And it's really funny, I think, because actually a baby sleeping through the night is really subjective because I know for some people that would be where the baby goes down and they sleep and they do not stir until morning time. For other people, it could be, well, you know, they go down to sleep, they wake for a really quick feed and they go straight back asleep and they continue on. You know, it's very different. Or for some people, it could be that for, for them to sleep through the night, that has to be at least eight hours. Whereas for somebody else, four hours could be great um and I think there's a lot of pressure on parents to have their baby sleep through the night you know it's one of the very first questions you're always asked are they good and are they sleeping yet that yet word is a pet peeve of mine because it kind of implies that well if they're not then they should be 
and you need to get there. And it just ignores the reality that babies will wake during the night. In fact, as adults, we wake during the night. We just don't know it anymore because our sleep cycle is so mature. But our babies, they're only developing and they need support with that. So that's definitely a pet peeve of mine, for sure. On the frequent waking, it's very interesting that you bring up that adults do that too, because I recently started wearing a health monitor to track my sleep because I've had poor sleep for a while. And I was surprised to see the number of times that the monitor detects that I'm awake up to three times an hour sometimes, you know, throughout the night. So we do do it as adults. But as you said, we have learned to go back to sleep and, and cope with it. And sometimes we're not even we don't realize that we are doing it. So that's a very important thing you do. And the other thing you touched on is what all night means to different parents. One parent's all night could be for three hours. They went from midnight to four. And to me, that's all night. And another parent thinks that it's from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And we know that recent research has demonstrated that baby sleeping patterns in the first few months of life varies widely. Um, you know, some babies can sleep for eight hours, some babies can sleep for only two hours overnight. But, you know, even the the duration or the or the total duration of sleep in a 24 hour period can vary from as little as eight hours up to 16 to 18 hours. So the normal range is quite wide and quite varied. And parents, I suppose, need to know that. I think so. And I think there's so much focus on getting the baby to sleep when actually what's needed is support for the parents. And how to navigate that absolute sleep deprivation that will be far more powerful and useful in the situation than trying to get really stressed and frustrated with getting your baby to do something that biologically they are not actually able to do yet you said you only have to be a good parent i suppose and i'm paraphrasing for about 30 to 40 percent of the time um, but based on the research, which um, is, is really good feedback for me. So I'm really delighted to hear that in terms of the um, emotional development of children and babies in the in the early years. What are some key aspects that parents should be aware of to foster this healthy emotional development, recognizing that they cannot be a perfect parent 24 seven? Try and make it a way of being as a parent rather than, you know, oh, I saw on Instagram that I'm supposed to spend five minutes a day working on connections. So I'm going to do this specific um, activity to do that. Because what happens is we get so focused on trying to fit it in. Often it doesn't fit in because life is busy and we can end up because it's a set, a set activity being really negative about ourselves if it doesn't go to plan. So I would say kind of integrate it into your life as a way of being in parenting. And don't get so caught up on these perfect images about how you do that um, on Instagram. So obviously, you know, it's nice to have those kind of set aside moments for connection. Like for me, with my eldest in particular, she loves to sit down and read books with me. That's a really nice way for us to connect. But when life is busy, I don't always have time to do that. And it doesn't have to look like that. So often parents are actually doing more than they realize. Um, so it could even just be a case of chatting to them and involving them in what you're doing. That is all that they want at that age. They just want to be included. They want to feel seen. They want to feel heard. So for me, it could be having my eldest stand in her kitchen helper while I'm trying to cook the dinner. And I can't give her my undivided attention, but we certainly are connecting with each other. We're chatting about what we're cooking and she feels involved and she feels important. And that's that's the important thing. The other thing, I suppose, for me in terms of emotional development, a big thing is that 
there seems to be this message that um, a baby is only okay if they're not crying. And therefore, as a parent, your job is to stop them crying. And the same for a child. When actually, that's really not the case because it's really healthy and it's important for them to cry or be upset or angry or frustrated or whatever it is. We don't want to shut that down. We want to make space for that and to be with them in that. And I think as a parent, that can be hard because a lot of us maybe were brought up with older style parenting practices where, you know, you would have been taught that, you know, stop that nonsense. You know, there's no need to be worried about that. There's no need to be upset about that or whatever it is. But actually, we're finding now that if you can allow your child to be upset and be with them in the moment, that is far more important. But that's a really big learning curve for parents, because the messaging out there is that if your baby is crying, then you are doing something wrong. And therefore, you are a bad parent. You know, these kind of spiraling messages go through our heads. And I do think with time, that becomes easier. But we, we always do, a kind of, I think, worry about other people watching and what other people might think. Um, even for me now, with my eldest, we're heading into what they call the, the terrible twos, which I hate as a term, where she's becoming more independent and she likes to voice her opinions and what she wants to do and she's her own way of doing it and of course kids being kids she'll do that at an inopportune moment where I'm trying to go into a supermarket or whatever it is and I think maybe it's because I'm a psychologist as well I definitely feel the pressure of everybody's watching me and she's screaming crying and what are they going to think and not only they're going to think I'm a bad mum but if they know I'm a psychologist they're going to think who is she she doesn't know what she's doing I'm never taking advice from her and I kind of learned to just drown out that noise and when I notice that my mind is wandering to what other people are doing around me I really try to focus on my child and the way that I've done that is to look at something that she's wearing and focus on it for a minute and that helps me just kind of put laser beam focus on her and ignore everybody else around me and I've I suppose through experience I've learned that if I slow down in the moment and if I work through that with her chances are I would get into that supermarket much faster much less stressed than if I had battled with her outside of the supermarket because I was worried about what people would think and what people would say. But that's, it's hard to get there. What you're saying resonates with me as well, personally, because when um, my daughter was growing up, she was only 18 months, two years, when both myself and my wife were in Toronto doing a fellowship. And she had this really strong personality where if you didn't do what she wanted at that time, all hell broke loose. And I remember a time where the crush where we used to um, have her in while we were working was very close to our or to our to where we were living in our apartment. But we used to bring her there in this cart where we used to pull. So it wasn't a buggy, but it was a cart that she sat on and we pulled her over. And I remember she wanted to go to the art room instead of going to crash. And we said, no, you're going to crash. And she screamed and screamed and screamed at 8 a.m., during the 10 minute walk, literally so loud that everybody was stopping and staring at us, bringing her there, thinking that we've kidnapped her, have done something. And the only thing we could do was just keep going, you know, and the and I think your advice is great in that you need to focus on something during this journey to drown everybody else out and just focus on the task, which is getting her to, <laughs> to crash. So it's very important. And the other thing you 
mention about, you know, fostering the parent-child development is spending time with them, regardless of what that time is. I remember my son, when he was three, he did something bold. I can't remember what it was. And uh, his punishment was, right, Faisal, you're coming upstairs with me and helping me clean the room, thinking that that is going to be a punishment for him. I handed him a wipe and I asked him to wipe the the closet doors. And he was doing that and he was very quiet and I was kind of, you know, getting the room done. And then he turns around and he goes, you know what, Dad, this does not feel like a punishment. I'm really enjoying myself. <laughs> <laughs> so they actually really love, um, really love spending time with us, regardless of, of, of what we're doing. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about sleep, because as you said, it's it's a very big topic early on. What advice would you give parents to deal with the common sleep challenges in infants and young children? I think to remember themselves in the middle of it all. I think a lot of the time when we're looking at sleep, it's almost as if these babies and children exist in a vacuum. And a lot of the time, the advice that parents are being given it's not based on research. So I would say, make sure to look to good re- good sources of information where what they're saying is backed on the, the scientific research behind it. If it doesn't feel right, if you're having a gut reaction that that doesn't feel right to do that with my baby, then listen to it. It doesn't matter what anybody else is saying to you. It doesn't matter what those books are saying. If it feels wrong, then it's wrong and it's not right for you. I suppose the child doesn't exist in a vacuum. And I found that a lot of the time we're giving strategies to parents and they don't have the capacity to implement them because they themselves are exhausted. So for me, it's not just about getting the baby or the child to sleep more. It's about how to support parents in optimizing sleep for the whole family while recognizing that we can't necessarily make the baby sleep more. This could be a season that you need to work through where their sleep is developing um, and there's going to be more night wakes and that's okay but that doesn't mean that it's easy either at the same time um, and that we can think outside the box and you know there's no I suppose there's a lot of taboos for parents around what they should and shouldn't do around sleep you know they're told if they co-sleep it's wrong they're told that if they don't co-sleep then they're not supporting their baby you know and it's really it's not just as clear cut as that. It's what's going to work for you and your baby, essentially, at the end of the day. And that's in line with your advocacy, recognizing the uniqueness of each parenting journey. Each parenting journey is unique. And I really admire what you do in you're not offering a quick fix solution to parents about sleep. You're really taking it as it uh, as it happens and recognizing the complexity and the uniqueness of each situation and offering parent tools to deal with their situation rather than trying to fix it or change it. And I think that's very admirable. And finally, I know I'd, I'd love to chat to you for hours and hours, but I know your time is, is, is precious. I want to ask you finally, in what situation would you recommend parents to seek psychological support or guidance for their children or themselves throughout their parenting journey? And what should they expect from such support? I think the biggest thing I would say is don't wait for fear that somebody will say you've nothing to worry about or that it's all in your head. I would say that if you feel you have concerns, whether that's for yourself or for your baby, um, definitely do reach out to services. If they feel that you don't need support, that's okay. Um, But the earlier we can intervene for both parent and child, the better the outcome. 
um, rather than kind of leaving that to fester or for a parent, I suppose, who might start out feeling stressed and then because they haven't got support, that develops into something much more significant, like a much more significant mental health difficulty. We're well used as psychologists, we're used to getting referrals coming into us where parents kind of describe what they would feel maybe are typical concerns that they shouldn't really be worried but it doesn't matter whether it's typical or if other people go through it or not it's their experience so if they feel that they're struggling then get the support that they need usually I think sometimes it can be a bit of a, a fear um that psychologist is going to read your mind you know um or they're going to give you a diagnosis and often that's not the case. I can tell you, I can't read minds. If I could, I would be a billionaire. That's not what we do. Um, a lot of it is about trying to help you understand what is going on, putting words on that experience, and then trying to access support that will make a difference for you. And that may or may not involve a psychologist for support piece. It could just be helping you to, in your home life, get extra support. When it comes to your child, if you're concerned about them, usually the best place to start would be to go to your GP or your public health nurse and discuss your concerns um, during those chats. Um, and then they will make a referral onto psychology if they feel that's appropriate. You can, of course, always access psychology privately as well. And I would say to parents that if you feel like, you know, maybe your concern isn't warranted, ask, can you just have a consultation phone call? I think there's a fear sometimes that parents feel that they're going to have to go into a block of intervention or a big assessment um, and they might not want that and that's okay you can just have a consultation to get kind of advice and support and guidance emma thank you so much for your time on the baby tribe podcast i have certainly learned a lot and i think this interview is going to resonate with so many parents that may be struggling in the early few months so we really appreciate your time thanks so much Afif. it was great to be on the show Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Baby Tribe podcast. We hope you found inspiration and valuable insights to help you on your parenting journey. Remember, you're doing an amazing job. Thanks for being part of the Baby Tribe community. See you next week.